Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. At 37, he's the youngest candidate in the Democratic field running for president. But South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg thinks his experience as the chief executive of that city and his time serving in Afghanistan have given him a perspective to move the country forward. Mayor Pete, as he's called, is our guest here this morning on Close Up. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk about this. You're the mayor of a mid-sized American city, about 100,000 people in South Bend. That's right. Uh, how do you make the leap uh, to leader of the free world with the nuclear codes? Well, look, uh, nobody walks into the Oval Office on day one with uh, any direct personal idea of what it's like to be in those shoes. And I recognize the audacity of, frankly, anybody at my age or any other age seeking that office. And yet every single person we've elected to that office has been somebody, a, a human being who has brought a certain amount of experience and perspective to the job. My experience is non-traditional, but I think it's highly relevant. First of all, I think executive experience is especially important right now. Uh, and I also think the experience of uh, leading a city of any size, but especially a city like ours that is in many ways typical of so many communities uh, that felt left behind by the process in the last 10 or for that matter 40 years, and leading it to growth after a period when we were classified as one of America's dying communities. I think that's exactly the kind of experience we need more of in Washington so that we can have uh, eventually the capital begin to look more like our best run cities and towns instead of the other way around. So much of what we talk about in primary politics is this insider-outsider dynamic. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Obviously, you're only a mayor, but you've been involved in politics for a long time. So do you consider yourself insider or outsider? Well, I suppose I'm an outsider to Washington. I, I don't get up in the morning and go to work there every day. But uh, I'm no stranger to uh, the process. I'm certainly no stranger to governing. Uh, I've built a track record of executive experience, including working with uh, now three different Republican governors, uh, but also uh, standing up to them when something was being done that wasn't right, uh, especially the confrontation we had with Mike Pence when he was uh, governor passing some uh, pretty backward legislation in our state in 2015. Uh, more importantly, I think that uh, just the life experience of coming from a community like ours, but also uh, being from the generation that I'm from, uh, you know, somebody who was in high school when the Columbine shooting happened and uh, understands what it means to grow up with school shootings as the norm, uh, somebody who uh, was one of those troops, like so many in my generation, uh, who was sent to uh, conflict in the war after 9-11 uh, and uh, has a personal stake in what's going to happen with climate change and fiscal policy and other issues that are going to come due in 20, 30, 40, 50 uh, during my lifetime. You mentioned Columbine. What have you done in South Bend that you can point to to say we've done something about gun violence? Well, in South Bend, we implemented a group violence intervention strategy, and uh, we think it's been very effective in helping to contain the epidemic of gun violence that's affected so many cities. Uh, we're not satisfied with where we are, but uh, rates of uh, gun murder are down by more than half from what they were like when I was a kid growing up in South Bend. Uh, it was a very uh, difficult and complex approach to put together. It involved a lot of uh, consulting outside experts, unifying federal, local, and state uh, officials on the law enforcement side, and really working with the community, including the faith community, uh, and social services for an all-hands-on-deck approach. But the truth is, it feels to mayors like me like we're often fighting violence with one hand tied behind our back because the state won't allow us to implement even widely popular, constitutionally tested, common-sense approaches on gun violence. Red flag laws, where do you stand on those? Some people are concerned that there's not enough due process 
in within that those kind of laws to allow people to get their guns back, say, if they've been taken away? I think it's common sense that if somebody, for example, has a pattern of domestic violence, uh, then that should be flagged and that should make it harder for them to get a weapon. We can talk about implementation concerns or fine-tuning the policy, but I can't imagine it should be controversial that somebody who is flagged as uh, having a propensity for violence or a criminal record or terrorist ties uh, should not be able to easily acquire a weapon that could be used to harm Americans. This is a security issue. Uh, and again, we can support the Second Amendment and also, as we always have as a country, uh, recognize that certain uh, reasonable checks and safeties need to be part of the process in order to keep us safe. And we can check state by state uh, which policies have worked better than others and which ones have led some states to have much better rates uh, when it comes to gun violence than other states. Having served in a war zone in Afghanistan, how would that service inform your leadership in the Oval Office in terms of deciding when and where to deploy American troops? Well, as somebody who was one of those troops, I believe that the next president has to have a much clearer and higher standard for when to use U.S. military force overseas. I was especially troubled recently to see the current national security advisor seeming to hint that uh, they would entertain committing U.S. troops to uh, South America to deal with the Venezuela situation that, however serious it is, is not one, in my view, that rises to that standard. And we have to be ready to put an end to endless war. You know, you could be old enough to enlist now and not have even been alive on 9-11. And yet we have people operating in multiple theaters, including places like East Africa, based on a congressional authorization that dates back to dealing with 9-11. Uh, there is no real policy right now in this White House or in this administration uh, when it comes to foreign policy writ large, but also uh, the standards that we're going to use for U.S. troops uh, being deployed abroad. And that really does concern me. You mentioned Venezuela. What should the United States be doing uh, in relation to Maduro, do you think that we should take a policy trying to move him out, basically? Well, it's certainly the case that the Maduro regime has lost its legitimacy, and that's why you see so many countries, not just the U.S., uh, declining to continue to acknowledge that regime. Uh, we also have to recognize that uh, our tools should be used in a targeted way. So when it comes to something like sanctions, they're certainly a legitimate part of our policy toolkit. In my view, they ought to be very targeted, and they ought to have a goal. Uh, not so much that we in the United States pick and choose who the leaders of other countries will be. But I think we do have an interest, and the international community has an interest, in free and fair elections so that Venezuela can have self-determination and uh, a legitimate uh, government that is elected by the Venezuelan people that can take its place, reassert its place in the community of nations. Back on the home front, do you believe that uh, people who want to go to college should be able to do so for free, paid for by the government? I certainly believe we have to reduce college costs. Uh, I haven't seen a, a convincing explanation of how we could wipe away all costs for everyone, but let's uh, be realistic. It's just not possible to get ahead uh, for many, many people with college costs structured the way they are. This is personal for me. We're living with a lot of student debt in my household, and so we need to make sure that uh, interest rates for student debt are under control. We need to make sure that Pell Grants can cover a higher share of college costs. We need to reduce college costs overall, including uh, being willing to subsidize them at a higher rate. And frankly, the federal government should be encouraging states to do more. Uh, you know, I'm aware that I'm in uh, the state of New Hampshire where even in-state college tuition is higher than uh, out-of-state college tuition might be for a lot of others. Uh, when you do that, uh, it might seem like a short-term savings, uh, but you, what you're really doing is robbing yourself of a future generation that may feel that it has to leave in order to find opportunity. And so this is a great example of how the world looks a little bit differently if you're thinking about it in the long term and trying to make sure we're making policies today 
that will benefit us, our states and our country, in, let's say, 2054, when I get to the current age of the current president. Your hometown is also home to the University of Notre Dame, uh, one of the most celebrated football programs in the history of the sport. Do you believe that NCAA, NCAA athletes in those top earning sports should be compensated for what they do? I think it's a healthy discussion to have. I haven't reached a considered uh, conclusion about where it should go, but uh, to the extent that this is turning into a business, uh, we have to ask whether we're doing right by these student athletes. Uh, obviously, the scholarship model uh, means a lot of value uh, is earned by these students, uh, but we also, also should have to ask uh, if they're being monetized, what rights that they might have over uh, the, the revenue that comes from that. Uh, healthcare policy. How do you pay for a public option on healthcare? Well, if we have the public option developed to where more and more people are able to get on a more efficient system, we should see healthcare costs going down as a result. You know, uh, the U.S. healthcare system is not even close to being the most efficient. As a matter of fact, uh, the reverse is true among developed nations. Uh, we're one of the worst when it comes to the share of our healthcare dollar that goes not into patient care, uh, but into bureaucracy and processing. I believe that if we expand access to healthcare, uh, then we will be able to see greater purchasing power and rate setting uh, that will enable us to help get more of those costs under control. Plus, uh, we also have to make sure that we're doing technical improvements to a system, even for those who are on Medicare today, that is far too complex, especially under the hood, far too much paper, uh, far too many hands touching individual uh, pieces of the process that really could be automated uh, in a way that would mean that more of our dollar goes to patient care and less dollars have to go into health care at all. You're from Indiana, but you went to Harvard, and you've actually spent some time in New Hampshire as a volunteer for political campaigns. What's your experience and sense of the New Hampshire voter? Well, the biggest thing I've noticed is how seriously voters here take the responsibility that comes with that first-in-the-nation status. You can tell by the questions uh, that you get. They're not uh, uh, parochial or short-sighted questions. They're deep and searching questions about the future of our party and the future of our country, the nature of American leadership in the world, uh, the kinds of questions that 2020 candidates should be able to answer. But I also think there's an expectation of a, a more human dimension. We're supposed to just get to know each other as people uh, before we get to know each other over the airways. It's one of the things I really uh, value about the process and, and the way that uh, the early states work, you know, compelling all of us who want to be considered for this office to really demonstrate not just what we think, but, uh, but who we are and what we're like. And uh, I, I'm just at the outset, I think, of building that relationship with New Hampshire voters, and I'm looking forward to developing it as we go. Mayor Pete Buttigieg will be getting to know you better as well. I hope so. Right. Thanks for your Thank time you. today. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or ones brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, make the season better with New Hampshire Chronicle. Get more out of winter. We've already had one Colorado politician jump into the race for Democratic presidential nomination, but there may still be another. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett is here in New Hampshire making some campaign-style stops, and he's our guest this morning. Senator Bennett, thanks, thanks for being for here. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to see you. We've got this huge and growing Democratic presidential candidate field. Uh, if you were to decide to get in, uh, what would be your lane and how would you stand out? I think that I had a different set of experiences than most of the people in the race. I was in business before uh, I was in politics. I know some people view that as a, as a negative in a Democratic primary. I don't share that view. I was a school superintendent after that. 
uh, for an urban district, for Denver, for the Denver Public Schools for five years, spend more time in classrooms uh, and in business than any of the other candidates. So um, I think that brings a different perspective. My work in the Senate has been attempting when I can to find bipartisan solutions to tough problems like immigration and um, and I think what we need to do is use this as an opportunity. We have an incredible opportunity in this country to change our direction, to focus on the lack of economic mobility that we have in our country, the inability of people to be able to rise from one economic station to the other. But only if we focus on that are we actually going to not just beat Donald Trump, but figure out how to govern the country again and restore our democratic institutions. That, that's a lot to do, that's a big agenda, and I think it's one where we can't be distracted by every single press release that goes out every single day. One of your other jobs was as chief of staff for uh, John Hickenlooper. Yeah. Uh, are your politics that different than his? I mean, he's already running. Uh, I think our approach to politics is different and our experience is very different. He was the governor of my state. I think he did a great job as governor. I'm glad he's running for president. I think it's great to have his voice in this conversation. I've spent the 10 years, uh, the last 10 years in the Senate uh, seeing firsthand the corruption that's down there and the ways in which our political system are broken and not going to deliver for the next generation of Americans unless we address those. I think it would be very hard for somebody who doesn't have some understanding of that uh, to be able to attack it in the way that it needs to be attacked. But I'm glad he's running. I think he'll be a great candidate. He was a great governor and a great mayor and a great boss. <laughs> and this is a concern he raised, but it's a question we're asking too. Do you think right now that the Democratic Party is being pulled too far to the left? Uh, I think we're being pulled too far in whatever direction by whatever happens to be on the cable television last night, by whatever press releases go out. I think people don't have a sense really for what Democrats stand for. And I, and I think what we stand for is making sure that in America, when you work hard, your family can live a middle-class lifestyle and you can leave something to the next generation of, of Americans. And that's getting drowned out by a bunch of stuff that um, may or may not help us achieve those goals. I think we need people in this race that are going to keep our focus on that question, just as Sherrod Brown did, you know, who I'm, is a colleague of mine that I really cherish in the Senate who decided not to run yesterday. He ran a successful campaign in the middle of the country, in Ohio, when everybody else was losing that was a Democrat because he lifted up the dignity of work. And coming from Colorado, it's a similar perspective that we have. You talk about the cable news and uh, the social media. You know, one of the reasons people know you, and there's some irony here. Uh, there's a lot of irony yeah, here. Yeah, that, that you had this moment on yeah. the, the Senate floor when you kind of uh, took Ted Cruz to the woodshed over the um, government shutdown. Right. So does that moment, you know, even though you're worried about this influence of cable news, does that moment they'll give you more credibility with Democratic voters? Well, right it now? certainly introduced me to a lot of people who didn't know me. I'm, I haven't spent a lot of time on the cable. I haven't spent a lot of time trying to get my name known. I've just been trying to work on behalf of my state, which is a third Republican, a third Democratic, and a third Independent. You know, that creates real complexity as you're trying to sort through the kind of problems that we face and trying to do something useful for the next generation of Coloradans and Americans. I mean, the kids in the Denver Public Schools, many of whom don't have the chance they should have to be able to move on to a better life. That's the stuff I'm focused on, and it is ironic that I end up, for a guy who is thought to be as mild-mannered as I am and not a flashy person, and I'm none of those things, it is ironic that that's become the most watched uh, Senate speech in American history. Another irony is that I accused Ted Cruz uh, of having used the Senate floor to um, 
to ride it all the way to what I call the second place finish in Iowa. He actually won Iowa, so I apologize for screwing that up. But, um, but I think the reason it resonated was that I said something that was on a lot of people's minds, which is we are not going to get where we need to go as a country doing the politics we've done for the last 10 years. It's not possible. And in this democratic republic of ours, we have a responsibility as citizens to elevate this political discussion, to put this miserable, shameful political discussion behind us, and not just beat Donald Trump, which I think is critical to, uh, to our country, but to actually be able to govern again and be able to create an economy again where when the economy grows, it's not a recession for the middle class, middle class income actually goes up. And folks that aren't yet middle class see their income rise as well. It's been 40 years since that's been true in our country. And we can't accept the idea that it can't be fixed because of globalization or it can't be fixed because of technology or it can't be fixed because of China. The American people certainly the people of Colorado and I'll bet the people of New Hampshire don't accept that and they know that in Washington we have made no effort to try to address it um, and I think that's what this campaign should be about. Another conversation dominating Washington right now is this anti-hate resolution right. that was over there in the Congress and the comments from Representative Omar uh, tweets actually that go back a while now. She has tweeted about uh, Israel hypnotizing the world. Uh, she made a reference to the influence of Jewish money in politics. She's also talked about uh, dual allegiance, this idea that uh, American Jews may have an allegiance to Israel and America. This has uh, created a fissure in the Democratic Party in terms of whether people stand with her or not. It's my understanding you're the grandson of Holocaust survivors, so we have a unique perspective here. Where do you stand on what she said? So what I would say is um, she shouldn't have said what she said. I condemn what she said. Um, my mom and her parents were survivors of the Holocaust, except for an aunt. All of the rest of them were killed. And they lived for two years in behind the Iron Curtain after the war was over. And then they went to Stockholm for a year in Sweden. They went to Mexico for a year, Mexico City actually. And then they came to New York City to rebuild their shattered lives. They believed this was the only country in the world where they could have done that. And there's good reason for them to believe that because we are a pluralistic society. We welcome people under the circumstances that my grandparents and my mom came here. My mom was the only one who could speak English. She enrolled herself in a public school. And my grandparents, who had the, the, the strongest accents of anybody I've ever met, and Colorado's full of immigrants that have strong, strongest accents of anybody I've ever met, were the greatest patriots that I have ever known. And they would be so dismayed by our inability now in America to address the challenges that we face. They believe this was the greatest country in the world. This was a country that had saved them. This was a country where you could come from someplace else speaking a different language, your business destroyed, your lives destroyed, and restart, and in one generation, they were able to pay for my education and my, and my siblings' education. So that's what our country is about. It's not about these daily this daily grind that uh, who's up and who's down in, in Washington. I think we need to get back to it. It's tough. It is tough because that stuff is on every night for three hours a night. And the Twitter feeds are relentless and eternal. And we haven't figured out how to use social media to actually um, uh, express our constructive citizenship. There's no reason that can't be true, but we haven't figured it out yet. And I hope during this presidential campaign uh, we're able to conduct it in a way that show, re restores American faith in our ability to govern. 
you know. And and when I think about the example of my grandparents, it's not hard for me to see what the essence of our country is, rather than what these you know distractions are. These detention centers on the southern border. Does anyone in the government who implemented this policy should they be facing consequences up to and including jail for what's going well, on? Well, I don't know enough to say that they should go to jail, but I think look, I had to apologize to my daughter Helena, who's named by the way for her Polish Jewish grandmother Helena Kledgeman. Uh, I was sitting in a car with her one day when the news came on that uh, the United States of America, that our government, in the name of the American people, was separating children from their parents at the border, and I said, Helena. I am so sorry because the country that I grew up in when I was your age, our government would never have thought to do such a thing. So what we should be doing is figuring out how to, how to restore kids and their families together, how to make sure that we're not breaking up families, it should not be the policy of the United States to break up families, and we should be working with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador to figure out how to restore some sense of order and rule of law in those countries so that people don't have to flee for their lives, which is what's happening right now. I went down there and to, to meet with people down there to find out what it would take, because I'm a parent of three daughters, what it would take for a parent down there to spend a year's salary or wages to put their kid in the hands of a drug dealer to smuggle them to the American border, knowing in many cases the kids would be violated and raped. And the answer is when you live in a place where there is no opportunity and where gangs are going to kill you on the playground or in your neighborhood for not doing exactly what they say, this is what happens. This is our hemisphere. I think we can work with our allies in this region and stabilize this situation so that we don't have this continuous wave of refugees coming to the U.S. border. Last question here, what's your timeline for deciding whether or not you're going to run for president? My timeline is in the next uh, few weeks, I am so happy to be in New Hampshire. It's, it's uh, already been great. I spent the morning with a group of kids working in the, in the Manchester Public Schools through city year doing national service, which I think is one of those things that really binds us together as a country, and I'm looking forward to spending the rest of the day here as well. I'll let you know. <laughs> All right, Senator Bennett, we appreciate you Thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.